They want to end the disparities. They want to be a part of that ruling class. And the way they do it is they, they jockey for power, each one creating a new identity. Oh, you're black, but wait, I'm a black woman. Well, you're a black woman, but I'm a black lesbian woman. Well, you're a black lesbian woman, but I'm a black lesbian woman transgender. And multiply, multiply, and multiply, and multiply the identities, each one claiming their identity is irreducible to any other identity. My identity is unique, of a different kind than all the other identities, and therefore, I need an equal place in that 1%. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Allpike, and joining me once again is Mr. Jonathan Astro. John, do you like a scholarly slam? I do. I, I, I um, you know, are we thinking like a two packs hit them up, but with lots of end notes? Yes, lots, lots of end notes. I'm talking copious amounts. That's what. That's what I want. That's what I want. So, have you got something for me? Or we do. We have a Norman Finkelstein to talk about identity politics and to talk about Obama as well. So, strap yourself in. He's got a lot to say. Yes, I'd wanted to read out this little quote that I have here. Get this. So, this is from his book. But woke politics and cancel culture are now ubiquitous. Overflowing the walls of the ivory tower, they have saturated the airways and social media. Once serious leftist journalists now refer to pregnant people and Latinx, and this is in brackets, why would an ethnic group want to sound like a porn site? Why, while people of color experts seem to, to, to spend more time braiding their hair than cracking their books, Every website's become a dating app, so uh, as professionals list their pronouns beside their names, whenever I see he slash him or he or she, her, I think, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. So that's, that's from today's guest and his wonderful book. So I just wanted to, to share that with you as a little preview. Excellent. All right, let's do it. Norman Finkelstein is an American political scientist, activist, former professor, and published author. He received his PhD from the Princeton University Politics Department in 1987. He is the author of many books that have been translated into some 60 foreign editions. He is known to most through his work on the Israeli-Palestine conflict, but his latest book is a departure from that topic. It's titled, I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get To It, Heretical Thoughts on Identity Politics, Cancel Culture, and Academic Freedom. We're thrilled to have him on the show. Norman, welcome to The New Flesh. Thank you for having me. Now, would you mind giving our audience a brief rundown of your background? Because your story and interests are part of what makes the writing of, of your latest book so interesting. I grew, grew up in a home of authentic survivors of the Nazi Holocaust. Both of my parents were in the Warsaw Ghetto and then in the concentration camps and then in the slave labor camps. Uh, every member of my family on both sides was exterminated uh, during the war, with the exception of my mother and my father. So we had no relatives, no grandparents, aunts, uncles. Uh, those were all theoretical concepts uh, for our family. My parents who are decidedly on the left, but I wouldn't call them the conventional left. They were decidedly pro-Stalin uh, to the last breath of their respective lives. Uh, they regard the Soviet Union correctly as having defeated the Nazis. And that was pretty much the determinant factor in, in the way they perceived the world. Uh, they were, you know, their sentiments were certainly decent, 
especially on issues of race and war. Uh, but I wouldn't call them communists in the sense that they uh, believed in any particular doctrine or dogma. They believed in Russia, they believed in the Red Army, they believed in Stalin, and nothing was going to dissuade them from that. So it was a very strange home to grow up. I mean, I didn't realize it was strange at the time. It's only in retrospect. I think my parents were probably the last Stalinists on the planet long after the Soviet Union or Khrushchev had denounced this, uh, Stalin and everybody had gone forward. My parents remained uh, fixed in the past. Uh, so um, what did I learn from it? Well, I said they had decent sentiments. And also, I respected the fact that their opinions couldn't be bought. This is what they believed, and they weren't going to bow to fashion. They weren't going to uh, defer to um, the current uh, fad or, or trend. Uh, they stuck by their beliefs. Now, maybe they stuck by them a little too much because they couldn't be persuaded by facts uh, but on the other hand, I respected the fact that they um, they detested people who sold themselves. Uh, there was a famous American female playwright named Lillian Hellman, and she had been in the Communist Party. She had been close to the Communist Party. Uh, her significant other, Dashiell Hammond, had been. He was a famous detective story writer. I've seen the movie, Julia. Yeah, and. Uh, she came under attack uh, and she, uh, for her pro-communist views, and her famous line was, quote, I won't cut my cloth to fit this year's fashions. Um, and that was my parents. So uh, that's what I got from it. And um, I was in back, involved in a lot of left-wing uh, cults, I suppose. Um, I was, of course, involved in the anti-war movement, Vietnam War, and civil rights to the extent that a person of my age could be involved in the civil rights movement. Um, and uh, then I was a Maoist for a long period of time. And after Maoism ended in China, uh, I was kind of cast adrift. And for reasons not worth going into detail, I eventually ended up devoting the whole of my adult life, which is about 40 years, to the Israel-Palestine conflict. I wrote uh, some other things uh, on the exploitation of the Nazi Holocaust. Um, I wrote a book on Gandhi, but most of it was on Israel-Palestine. Well, that's great. Great background there uh, to some of our follow-on questions here. Uh, since, since we're going to be talking a bit about identity politics, maybe it's worth setting the table a bit. Uh, how do you define identity politics and what's wrong with it? I've always found that trying to give abstract definitions doesn't get you very far. And so in the book, I avoid any kinds of definitions. What do you mean by wokeness? What do you mean by identity politics? What do you mean by cancel culture? I think people have a vague idea, uh, maybe, uh, a vague idea of what it means. So identity politics, basically, if you were to ask me for a definition, I would say it refers to some biological fact about your personhood 
which in the world of identity politics is your defining characteristic. And what are the, so I think we, you're right. We all, we all know it's that old definition of pornography. We, we all know it when we see it. <laughs> and, um, but what are the material effects of identity politics broadly? What, what, how does it manifest in, in, the, in the real world in a way that rankled you enough to write a book like this? The uh, identity politics was pretty marginal for a long time. You know, in academia, there are all these fads, and these fads are completely divorced from reality. Nobody much cares about them. Nobody much even knows about them. And they probably, uh, well, not probably, they exercise next to zero significance in the real world. And identity politics more or less fit into that trajectory uh, It was similar to what we used to call political correctness uh, and all sorts of other, uh, as I say, uh, weird emanations from academia. <clears throat> uh, and also, leaving that aside, identity politics had a, <clears throat> excuse me, had a real aspect to it. Uh, or I should say, a real aspect to it on the left. What do I mean by that? Well, as far back as the socialist movement in its origins, there's always been a recognition that there are certain questions which are not reducible to the class question. Um, they, didn't even, they didn't really use the question. They didn't use the language of the class question back you know, 100 years ago. They use the expression, the social question. The social question meant the class question. And there were certain questions, and they used the term questions. There were questions that were not reducible to the class question. So typically, let's say in my day, uh, if I walked into a bookstore, you would see a book. I remember it. Actually, I probably still even have it on my bookshelf. It was a little red book, and it said, Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin on the woman question. So there was something called the woman question, which was distinct from the class question. Then there was famously the Negro question. And then thirdly, there was the Jewish question. These were all questions which meant that their resolution or their origin wasn't immediately reducible to class. Now, having said that, I have to be careful. There were a large number of people, including, by the way, Rosa Luxemburg, who I've been reading of late, who did believe that the woman question will be resolved with socialism. So there is no real need to address it with any kind of vigor or rigor on its own. Uh, her closest friend was Clara Zetkin, and Clara Zetkin was a founder of the women's, the Marxist women's movement. And so there was a kind of, you could say, a tension between them, though on a personal level, there was no tension at all, but at an intellectual or political level, because Rosa was a character who believed that through the sheer force of her personality, 
and the weight of her intellect, she would prevail. She didn't accept that being a woman was going to stop her. It may slow her, it may make the struggle more difficult, but it wouldn't stop her. Now remember, Rosa was a very, I assume you folks have heard the name Rosa Luxemburg, correct? Only to, embarrassingly very new to her work, but I have heard the name now. Oh, okay. She was a very unusual personality because she was a Polish, Jewish, middle-class, cripple woman, five identities. And believe it or not, she then became the leader of the radical wing of the German Workers' Party, the German Social Democratic Party. Now, could you imagine that happening today? A Polish person becoming a leader of the German Workers' Party? A Jewish person? A middle-class person? And so she's an example of somebody who didn't, if I can use the expression, wallow in her identities. She didn't try to exploit her identities. I think the fair description is she transcended and triumphed over them. And that to me is a much more inspiring model than turning your biological givenness into a into the overarching aspect of your person or your personhood so to return to your question the idea of identity politics always existed in the left there was the question of as a practical and as a theoretical matter how you relate the two the class question and the woman question the class question and the Jewish question, the class question and Negro question. How do you relate them as a theoretical question and also as a practical one? Do, should women organize separately from a workers' party? Is their first loyalty as workers or is their first loyalty as women? There are a lot of practical and theoretical questions. So. That aspect of identity politics strikes me as perfectly valid. Uh, somebody like W.E.B. Du Bois, for whom I have a very high regard, he struggled a, a large part of his life trying to understand the nature of racism. What is racism? From whence does it spring? How do you rid yourself of it? And of course, there are class aspects to racism, for example, the boys would say that racism in part was a product of trying to maximize super profits from exploiting non-white labor. So a whole ideology of black inferiority and so forth was created. So there's a class aspect to racism. However, it was not entirely reducible to issues of class and class struggle. For example, at the end of his life, Du Bois began to acknowledge there is a deep psychological aspect, irrational psychological, 
psychological aspect to racism, which is not going to be easily eradicated. You know, how do you explain these ghoulish lynchings of black people? I mean, these lynchings were, you might say, were very anti-utilitarian. These bonfires, these uh, uh, incineration of bodies, these selling off at the end of the lynchings of the body parts, that there was something really deeply psychopathological going on there, which was not reducible to class. There's something else going on. It's just not about super profits. So it seems to me you have to recognize the legitimacy of things like racism as not being just a class question. What happened with the identity politics is, in my opinion, number one, it was appropriated by the Democratic Party in our country, the Democratic Party, and it served two basic purposes. Number one, the Democratic Party had basically given up on the white working class. Uh, as Hillary Clinton famously put it, she put them, the white working class, in what she called the basket of deplorables. These people are rednecks, yahoos, hicks, antediluvians, barbaric, they're lost. So that had historically been the base of the Democratic Party, the white working class, since Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And it had to be replaced. And the way they tried to replace it was by trying to aggregate the various minorities or the various identities. So along comes a Joe Biden, he has a black woman vice presidential candidate, appoints a black woman to the Supreme Court, has now a black woman lesbian as his press secretary. It's all, you know, very obvious what they're doing. We're going to get that black woman vote, which is actually an important vote. We're going to get that black woman vote. So it's trying to create a new base for the Democratic Party. And then its second main purpose has been to act as a juggernaut to destroy any kind of class-based politics within the Democratic Party. And that was, as of course you know, typified by or exemplified by the Bernie Sanders movement. And it was very striking during his two candidacies that it was all the spokespeople for the identity politics sector of the Democratic Party who went after Bernie. Uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, he said, Bernie is weak on black reparations. Angela Davis, she said, Bernie is weak on the black question. Kimberly Crenshaw, she said, Amazon, Jeff Bezos, he's way ahead of Bernie. He's at the cutting edge of radicalism. You know, Bernie is just this old Jewish schmuck. She doesn't say that, but that was clearly the implication. And so the identity politics began to serve, a, in my opinion, a very nefarious purpose. The purpose was to stop dead in its tracks any class-based movement directed uh, at gaining power. And among the and then there's among the actual identity politics people, uh, 
the spokespersons, uh, their main goal is just to get a piece of that pie, what they call disparities, or they want to rectify disparities. What does rectify disparities mean? It's very simple. Black people represent 13% of the United States population. So they want to make sure that 13% of the white, of the 1% who control everything, that 13% of that 1% who control everything are black. That's their goal. They want what they call, they want to end the disparities. They want to be a part of that ruling class. And the way they do it is they, they jockey for power, each one creating a new identity Oh, you're black, but wait, I'm a black woman. Well, you're a black woman, but I'm a black lesbian woman. But you're a black lesbian woman, but I'm a black lesbian woman transgender. And multiply, multiply, and multiply, and multiply the identities, each one claiming their identity is irreducible to any other identity. My identity is unique, of a different kind than all the other identities, and therefore... I need an equal place in that 1%. I have to have an equal place in that 1% because you don't represent me. You're just a black lesbian woman. I'm a black lesbian woman, trans, transphobe, whatever. No, not transphobe, nope. a trans person, yeah. Freudian slip there. <laughs> no, I, I knew transphobe is also a minority, so you're a black woman. You get my point. <laughs> so it just became, it became a jockeying, a jockeying for a power a jockeying for privilege. And in the process, they served one of their main goals, uh, why the Democratic Party embraced them, which is they end up wrecking any coalition because they say, unless your, dem unless your demands include me and my special oppression, then you're engaging in some sort of phobic behavior. Now, if there are 10,000 uh, 10, different identities, according to my friend Sanjeev Mahajan, he's a mathematician, he worked this out mathematically. I have a long footnote on him in the book. And he says, actually, if you go by their reasoning, there's literally, this is not hyperbole, there's literally an infinite number of uh, identities. Norman, just, I, I just have a quick follow-up right, here. Gonna, so I'm going to finish the thought sure. right now. So then there has to be an infinite number of demands in your po a political platform. And you can't build a movement on that. So let's say you say, we'll build our movement on four demands, end student tuition, end student debt, a Green New Deal, and Medicare for All. Well, then they say, wait, but now you're privileging those four demands over my demand. Well, then you have to have an infinite number of demands. Try to build a movement on that. Try. Well, yeah, that, that, that was my follow-up question. W wouldn't it be easier to mobilize the working class base rather than this ever-increasing group of identities that, as you say, goes, goes you know, in, into, uh, you know, just infinite amount? Uh, you know, isn't, isn't the working class a huge base that, that you could mobilize? Well, I, look, a lot of this is, of course, speculative, but there's at least some, in my opinion, so to speak, material evidence for our speculation. It's forgotten now, and you're Australian, so you couldn't possibly remember because it was a, an American thing. 
it's forgotten now how close Bernie Sanders got uh, on a very class-based platform. The, the platform was pretty nuts and bolts class. Uh, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, meaning jobs and infrastructure, and student debt, and student tuition. Um, very s simple, straightforward class demands. Remember, up until, again, there's no reason why you would remember the uh, details. Up until South Carolina, the South Carolina primary in 2020, the Democratic Party was was in a near catatonic state. They were terrified that Bernie might win. There was a real possibility there. Now, it didn't pan out, which means that, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done. But the possibility, I think, does exist. And the main role of identity politics, or one of its two main roles, its first main role is, as I say, to fill the ranks, the base of the party. But its second main role has been to wreck that, uh, that uh, possibility. Um, and it was just very clear, you know, the most woke newspaper in the United States now is the New York Times. And the New York Times either whited out Bernie as if he, he was running in the election, or running headlines like, Bernie had a heart attack. Bernie had a heart attack. Trying to over and over and over and over again, Bernie's heart attack to try to stop him. Um, so there was, to my thinking, there was a very clear, a very clear intersection between wokeness and stopping Bernie. The two went very clearly hand in hand. And that, to me, tells you the real essence of identity politics. Uh, I quote in the book a remark by Leon Trotsky, where he says that um, often you have these people who are so apparently radical that at certain moments they become so radical that they even lose sight of how far they've gone over in the spectrum, you know. Right now, the uh, litmus test of radicalism is where you stand on trans people. It's like a, it's becoming a kind of like a total freak show, you know. It's like in the 1950s in my country, where telethons used to parade cripples. Uh, now they parade trans people in this, in a very good expression, I think, in this virtue signaling. And then Trotsky says, so these people appear super, super, super radical. But then he says, in the moment of truth, where a real critical question is at stake, he says they always reveal their true colors, that they're really just agents of reaction. And that's exactly what happened with the Bernie. All these radical, radical people saying, you know, Bernie's this old Jewish schmuck with his stupid class politics. And then when the campaign, it looked like, hey, this is the real deal. They actually happened. They all revealed what they're really about. There's this cow, this bovine on MSNBC, which is the woke news station. She brings on a, uh, this woman, Joy Reid, uh, she brings on a body reader specialist. This is no joke. I mean, you can't even make this stuff up to prove that Bernie Sanders is a liar. 
by virtue of his body movement. I mean, that's how pitiful it became. Joy Reid, by the way, is black. That, that's, an old, that's an old trick, isn't it? Getting some body language expert in. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's old. And then they had uh, Whoopi Goldberg. I don't know if you know her. Just right. uh, Zero, 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 minus one. Uh, she, she's on this program called The View. Uh, and Bernie was on, and she snarled at him. When are you going to get out of this election already? That's the woke people. That's the woke people. Well, Norman, so in your book, you, you know, we've talked a bit about identity politics more broadly. In your book, you, you, you go through uh, the, the major th the thought leaders, dare I say, of the woke movement, Robin DiAngelo, Ibram X. Kendi, Tanisi Coates, Kimberly Crenshaw. Uh, you know, the, these are the minds that brought us white fragility, black reparations, intersectionality, a bit of what we call critical race theory, but obviously that's a whole other discussion. Um, so I, I guess I, I, I'm wondering why, because you, you really go at these in, in a one-of-a-kind scholarly way uh, that I don't think, I don't think it has been done in the way that, you, that, that uh, you've, you've done it. And um, so how is it, that I mean, firstly, tell us just quickly what what you know what you make of of the of these people you know after your your analysis. But then more more to the point, if the answer is what I think it is, how is it that they that these ideas have had such great global impact? Because everything you've said, or it's funny, or every time you say you don't know who these people are. We know. I know who Joanne Reed is. I know who Whoopi Goldberg is. I, no, no, but I know. <laughs> I know what Whoopi thinks of the Holocaust. It, she thinks it's just people like white people duking it out or something. So this is a global movement. These ideas have penetrated so deep in that in that we are in lockstep here with you guys over in the US. So I want to know how is it that these ideas that you have worked through have managed to get such purchase. The second half of your question, why the plague has spread outside the United States, I can't really answer that question. I, I did notice that I, I spent a lot of time in the West, Israeli-occupied West Bank. I prefer to call it the Israeli-annexed West Bank, but whatever you call it. And I was teaching English there. This is a long time ago. This is 1990, so it's 30 years ago. And I remember that I was struck that all of this postmodern crap that was pervasive in the United States, it had managed to spread to the West Bank in their textbooks. I thought, my God, if the Palestinians don't have enough problems, they're now burdened with this crap. How that happens, I can't really explain it. In the case of the U.S., what I would say is two things. Well, the obvious first point is it's all uh, it's all nonsense. It's stuff and nonsense. Uh, I sit down. I just apply the most elementary uh, protocols of logic, evidence, reason to see is there an argument here? Does this stuff make any sense? And the resounding conclusion across the board is it doesn't. It's just 
uh, it's uh, they used to call it a uh, a word salad. It's throwing words. But isn't that makes... just your cis white privilege talking? <laughs> Re reacting against the, this uh, the truth. No, <laughs> uh, because. I did what I do think it's correct to say nobody else has done, which is I sat down and read the stuff. And then I sat down and I, I pondered the question, what does this mean? And is there any truth to it? Does it make any sense? I Sometimes, you know, when you make something look simple on paper, it, you conclude it must be very simple. No, I struggle very hard to make sense of this stuff. How do these people contrive this argument? Kimberly Crenshaw says, a black woman is triply oppressed. She's oppressed because she's black. She's oppressed because she's a woman. And then she's oppressed because she's a black woman. That's a third separate category. Black woman, black woman. Now, just as I see John pondering this, I spent many a sleepless night <laughs> trying to understand what does that mean? Okay, I understand black and I get woman, but now there's a third oppression, black woman. And you, it's not so easy to make sense of all this stuff. I struggled, I work, I'm a hard worker. No, it's, admit, it's just it's maths, Norman. Trying. It's one plus one equals three. <laughs> That's funny. Um, it's not Chomsky and linguistics, I'll admit it. And probably Professor Chomsky could figure out in five minutes, but it took me five days, and I'll admit that also. But I operate, I operate at the level of most mortals, but I have more mental intensity when I'm trying to resolve some questions. So uh, I, I, I didn't just say this is crap. I didn't just say it's bogus. The chapter on candy is 100 pages long. I, mean, I just spent a lot of time trying to figure all this out. Um, so I conclude it's nonsense. And the other, the other point is I think 99% of Americans think it's nonsense. In my students, I've had, I only recently started teaching after a hiatus of 15 years when I was blacklisted in academia. Now I do some temporary teaching, what's called in the United States adjunct teaching, which is like a substitute teacher. And I've had now, I would guess, around 300 students. Of those 300 students, two have raised issues of pronouns, two out of 300 and one very diffidently he was very shy about it i don't even know if i should say he or she because i couldn't i live no i, I like the student very much so i would never say anything to disparage this student but i couldn't quite figure out what this person's sexual identity was and it was left hanging in the air but with that that exception uh, Nobody gives a darn about these academic debates. The problem is, number one, because the Democratic Party has tried to instrumentalize cancel culture, 
it's uh, or woke politics. It's got much more, uh, let's call it public recognition, not agreement, but public recognition. Um, so that's one difference from, say, all the lunacies in the past of the left, because it's been instrumentalized by the Democratic Party. And secondly, it's infiltrated universities, uh, all of this, uh, what is it called? Inclusion, equity, uh, diversity, what's the equity, and inclusion. and inclusion. Yeah. What's the first? Diversity. Diversity. That's the, equity, most, that's the most important thing. That's that's, and the fact that you couldn't remember it, I think, speaks volumes. <laughs> you know, I remember it, but then my mind suppresses it. It's like I because <laughs> it's so, it's destroyed whole departments, whole disciplines. You, the English. The English off, the offerings in the English uh, departments at universities are just, it's just a tragedy what they've done. You'll have a whole English departments with course offerings, Haitian American lesbian women literature, Filipino lesbian trans literature. Aren't they better than Shakespeare? It's Believe it or not, and I'm not exaggerating, it's very hard to find in many universities now, of course, on Shakespeare. It really is. You can have whole philosophy departments, whole philosophy departments, which are just Foucault, Heidegger, uh, Derrida, Foucault, Heidegger, Derrida, and Nietzsche. The whole department. There's really a deformity in I had a friend, he was actually the one who was just Skyping me. He went to study uh, English literature at the graduate level at the University of uh, Kentucky. And it was just everything about lesbian women. And he just dropped the class. He said, just, I couldn't take it anymore. There was nothing else. So it has had really pernicious effects in certain disciplines, and it has a lot of public play. And because the Republican Party has now instrumentalized opposition to woke politics, it's become, it has a large salience. And there, I think, the Republican opposition has managed to build a base on it. Whereas the Democratic Party, I don't think it's true. I think that most people who would vote Democratic have next to no interest in the woke politics. At least that's been my impression. It has a lot of public presence, but that doesn't mean it resonates with people in general. Uh, in the midst of all the problems confronting Americans now, pronouns is not a front burner item. Well, your book, just kicking this down the road a little bit, your, your book does something you're not supposed to do, uh, and that is dare to question the candidacy, the qualifications and the legacy of President Obama and his cabinet, who uh, you refer to as the Obama bots. I found it really shocking because based on much of what I've read in this space for years now, the narrative is that Donald Trump is the one who drove the identity politics train. And I have questions, uh, we, we both got questions about Obama uh, at the, your Obama section, which is wonderful, uh, uh, incredible uh, 
um, sort of analysis of him and his cabinet. Maybe lead us through the-, the, the I wonder the, if I could just correct you on one point before please. we proceed. It wasn't Obama's cabinet. Obama's actual cabinet was very serious, mainstream people. He had Timothy Geithner and Larry Summers handling the economy. He had Robert Gates handling the military. He had Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State. He had what you might call an inner coterie of flakes because Obama was a kind of, he created a cult around himself and he surrounded himself with all these certifiable mediocrities who constantly appeased his need to hear how brilliant he was. Because in the, the cabinet people knew, no, guy's not very smart. He hasn't a clue what he's doing. Uh, and Obama was smart enough to know that they saw right through him. Larry Summers, the former head of Harvard University, he doesn't suffer fools. And so uh, Obama got the vibe, if you get my point. So he compensated for it by surrounding himself with all of these mediocrities um, who worshipped at his every word. And so can you lead us through some of the reading the preparation you did for this this chapter because i think you read some books that no one has ever read no well first of all nobody reads it all anymore so that, that's not saying very much it'll be saying some uh, saying something if you say a book that other people have read that that's very <laughs> uh I, I read through everything there was but i read through it with a very specific purpose in mind there's been a lot written in Obama's policies, on his economic policies, on his uh, foreign policy. There's a substantial literature, uh, not as much as you would expect, but there's still a substantial literature, a lot of it critical of him. However, I was looking at it through a different lens. I wanted to see how woke culture created Barack Obama, how this phenomenon happened, because on his own, I won't call him a zero, maybe a four or a five. When he was in grade school, he was known for three things. His smile, the fact that he always carried around a basketball, and that he was always high. The, they call it in Hawaii, he's from Hawaii, they call it chum, C-H-O-O-M, which is what we call here, pot, marijuana, whatever you call it. He was always high. When he gets to college, so he attends Columbia University for two years. Two years he was in another college. Uh, a biographer of his goes back to Columbia and goes around asking all of Obama's pre uh, professors, so what did you think of Obama? I have no recollection of him. I have no recollection. Nobody remembered Barack Obama. Nobody. Now, you know, the Columbia is a liberal university, so if you had a smart black student, everybody would remember. They would make a point of remembering. No memory. And so this Obama genius uh, phenomenon suddenly emerges out of nowhere at Harvard. 
a guy who has no academic record is suddenly being celebrated by all these Harvard professors as the most brilliant student they've ever had. Everybody's most bright. I'm thinking to myself, where did that come from? He's competing against the top students in the country, many of whom graduated first in their class in college. He had no academic record to show for himself, and suddenly he's being acclaimed as the most brilliant student. I, I say at one point in the book, I said, I'm sorry, I'm not woke, so I'm not going there. I don't believe in miracles. I, I know what hard work is. And I know what it means to be overwhelmed by a lot of very smart people because I went to graduate school at Princeton and I wasn't prepared. And I know what it means to be overwhelmed. So I began to wonder what's going on here. I'll just give you one example. The senior constitutional professor at Harvard was a fellow named Lawrence Tribe. Now, Tribe knew math. Tribe himself attended Harvard at age 16. He, was, he graduated in mathematics, and he graduated summa, top, okay? The man knows math. So Tribe, he starts saying that Obama knew relativity, Einsteinian relativity, and quantum physics. I'm thinking to myself, really? Obama took one science course at Columbia. It was called Philosophy for Poets. Excuse me, Physics for Poets, if you get the drift. Physics for Poets. He took no math courses, but he knew relativity. He knew quantum physics. Really? I was once in a car with Professor Chomsky, and I always used to ask him his opinion on this, his opinion on that, his opinion on this. One day I asked him, so, Professor Chomsky, uh, what's your opinion of Einstein's contribution, his theory to relativity? Is it as extraordinary an achievement as is said? And he turned to me and he replied, Norman, he didn't call me Professor Finkelstein. He said, Norman, there are very few people in the world who understand relativity, but now, on the word of Lawrence Tribe, uh, Barack Obama is one of them, even though he never took a math course, and the only science course he took was physics for poets. Well, obviously, this is all a crock of shit. And so a large part, or I say the thrust of that chapter is trying to figure out how this phenomenon called Barack Obama was created, and also why. And I say he was the ultimate, the quintessential expression of identity politics. Basically, he turned his campaign into a national referendum. It was a morality tale. Barack Obama, Barack Obama is a nice guy, and he's got a winning smile. And he went to Harvard Law School. So if you're not a racist, of course, you're going to vote for him. And if you don't vote for him, it must be because you're a racist. So oddly, the election turned into a referendum, not on him, 
is he the most qualified to be president, it'd be turned into a referendum on the American people. Are you qualified to recognize your racism? And if you uh, are real anti-racist, you have to vote for him. Just on this point, you have an interesting quote from Obama's memoir that he pulled off a neat trick. Those are, those are his words. Yeah. The trick being that he ran a campaign solely on his skin color. Now, I, I hate to sound like Robin D'Angelo or Ibram X. Kendi, but if we put political policy aside for a moment, did the, that fact alone, you know, the fact that America elected its first black president, did that do anything on a symbolic level, I guess, to ease tensions or heal historic wounds? Well, it was a cultural threshold that was crossed. And nobody, no sane person would deny it, that given the United States' history, the fact that they would elect a black man president is a huge cultural achievement. But the question is, whose achievement? It was... As a commentary on the American people, it was a very impressive thing. No question in my mind about that. But what did Barack Obama have to do with it? He just capitalized on the decency of Americans who were willing to fight their racist demons and elect a black man president. But did he make a contribution? No. He just capitalized on... Um, capitalized on the transformations that had occurred in American society. At that point in the book, if you glance down at the foot, no, it's in the text. I quote Trotsky in his description of Stalin. He said Stalin was a mediocrity, but who plucked the ripe fruit of the revolution and capitalized on it. And Barack Obama plucked the ripe fruit of the transformations that occurred in American society and capitalized on it for his own uh, personal aggrandizement. Did he contribute anything? Not so far as I can tell. And then when he got elected, he, he promptly betrayed all the hopes that were um, unleashed by his candidacy of hope and change and ended up probably his own achieve, his own biggest achievement was getting uh, Donald Trump elected because a lot of those uh, a significant number certainly enough to turn the election a significant number of those who had voted for Obama in 2016 then voted for Trump in 2020 can you maybe unpack that a little bit more your 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 idea that um, Obama contributed to the Trump Trump presidency? Well, I, I got the years wrong. A significant number, I just have to think back, a significant number of those who vote for Obama in 2008 and 2012 voted for Trump in 2016. And the reason was, to my thinking, it was pretty transparent, though I had a lot of arguments with people uh, on it. There was hope that there would be change under Obama. Uh, the people who we appointed restored the capitalist system for the haves, which is exactly what you expect a Larry Summers to do or a Timothy Geithner or any of the others in power. They're going to 
restore the system, uh, which had crashed in 2008, and make it work for themselves. And they did next to nothing for the other, do you want to call it 99% or probably realistically 80%, they did next to nothing. So in 2016, a large number of people, they were faced with two possibilities. Hillary Clinton ran on a platform of what she called building on Barack Obama. Building on Barack Obama, more of the same, but more. And for, most, for a large number of people, that's building on quicksand because they got nothing out of the Obama years. So you had a choice between that and the roll of the dice. This guy comes along, he's a bit weird, you know, Donald Trump, a little gross, a little bit vulgar, a little bit uncouth. But if you have a choice between quicksand and the roll of the dice, the rational thing is go for the roll of the dice. Basically, Obama, excuse me, basically, Trump ran on the same platform as Obama. Obama's platform was hope and change. Trump's platform was make America great again. It's the same thing. So people decide to go with the roll of the dice, which was perfectly sensible, in my opinion. Well, just on, just on those campaign slogans, um, it's clear to, to, to say that, that you characterize Obama as not standing for much. And, you know, I think this is visible when you think of his campaign slogan, Yes, We Can. Now, even as an outsider to America, I can say that the slogan Make America Great Again was at least backed up with some ideas of how to achieve that, whether you agree with them or not. You know, at, at least Trump had, you know, he had the border wall, bringing back manufacturing and, and trying to stand up to China. But yeah, he didn't it, do, he didn't do, he did next to nothing, Trump, on all of those things. But uh, in my opinion, he clearly would have won in 2020 were it not for that spectacular self-inflicted wound called his handling of COVID. Mm. If he had been even, if he had been remotely rational in his handling of COVID, he would have slaughtered Biden. Mm. But but I guess my question is, my question is, yes, we can what, you know, is my question. Was was anyone asking that question? Yes, we can vote for me. That was all it was. (laughs) (laughs) But that's true. That's all it was. And he's very clear about that. He called himself in, the, in his memoir, the ultimate Rorschach test. He said, everybody saw me what they wanted to see. He said that himself. And he said, I pulled off a neat trick. I got elected standing for nothing except myself. Are you surprised that he's so open about that? I said, I had to say, I wrote in the book, it's, it's not every politician would, who, who would be so brazen as to flaunt the fact they vote, they they won standing for nothing. <laughs> yeah, it was funny, but you know what? You have to have an acute eye to even notice it. You know, when I think most people just, I think you know, strangely enough, I don't think Obama noticed what a scandalous remark that was. I don't think he even noticed it. It was like. Eh. <laughs> I pulled off a neat trick like he was a magician pulling a rabbit out of the hat. He didn't see what he was saying. He got elected standing for nothing. Well, I got I got two questions. One is 
uh, firstly, I was, they're very different, but firstly, I was struck by the fascinating comparison you made between Clinton and, say, Jimmy Carter uh, and, and this guy. So maybe you could talk Look, about facts that. Are facts. facts are facts. Do I like Clinton? No. Was he a horror show? Yes. Was he smart? He was as sharp as a tack. He was a voracious reader. He also happened to be in a personal, strictly personal level, a very engaging guy. You, you know, he came from a poor, uh, you know, we call it in the United States, a white trash background. He liked to go, you know, shoot the breeze with the neighbors. He had a real easy rapport. He wasn't, he didn't come from a ruling elite family at all. Actually, you could ex tell exactly why nobody has mentioned it to my knowledge, and I'm, my knowledge is limited here, why he was so attracted to Monica Lewinsky. You know why? He looked exactly like his mother. This huge pompadour hair. Yeah. Yeah. She looked exactly like a hillbilly, this hill, hillbilly uh, mother. Yes, it's true. Um, so he had a very engaged, he's very funny. No, the memoir is funny. He's just a very funny guy. And uh, but super smart. Everybody commented on his his memory. His memory for minutia in public policy was apparently staggering. And he loved politics. He loved it. You could see, you know, he started at a young age. Most of these people, by the way, who get into positions, at least the real positions, people like Cheney, Rumsfeld. Cheney and Rumsfeld, believe it or not, got their start in 1974 under Clinton, excuse me, under Nixon. I mean, we're talking about a way back. Clinton, he got started at 21. He was in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee working there at 21 years old. They were really, they loved politics. And Clinton uh, makes that clear. Carter was mentally stupendous stupendous i've read the volumes that were called the the foreign relations of the u.s volumes which are just compendia released after 30 years of all the documents from the era there's a 30-year lag a 30-year rule as it's called i've read carter's that guy was he was on top of the game i quote how he prepared for camp david the uh, negotiations between Menachem Begin in Israel and uh, Anwar Sadat in Egypt. My gosh. You know, he said, I'm pouring over the maps. I'm pouring over the volumes. I got this thick volume. And you know it's not BS. It's not BS. It's very striking that when uh, Carter describes how he prepared, there's no description like that. No. Obama's memoir for the first two and a half years is 700 pages because he's a megalomaniac, 700 pages. But, but there's nothing like it. There's no recounting of preparation. There's no recounting of intense mental labor. The only thing that he really he, he describes in detail is watching his beautiful daughter, Malia, grow up, you know, revolting this Christ, this 
There's an uneasy connection, Norman, between Obama and you've given me courage now with some of what you said. So I'm going to say his annoying wife. Um, uh, this connection between Obama and Hollywood, uh, and you do this great uh, sort of um, recasting of, of of some of the events in a Hollywood style, uh, a scripted style. Isn't it odd that there's no major movie about him? You know, we've got a George Bush movie before. Oh, it's coming. We, we, it's coming. But but it's is coming. well, I'd be fascinated because I thought that th this might be the uh, we, as I said, we got a George W movie while he was still in office. So no, no, it, it's coming. Listen, I think Obama spent most of his time in the White House getting photographed. I'm very serious about that. If you look on a typical bookshelf, most of the books in the Obama years are. Photography books, pictures of him. There, there are books already on portraits of Obama. He was made for Hollywood. Hollywood was made for him. Uh, no, it's coming. You could see. Uh, I think the film's going to be very boring. But it could be really interesting, though, though, because it's, I know we've cancelled all the people that that could make the movie properly. But you know, because an inter interesting it's impossible. But an interesting take, you, you, you go through this in the book, the most interesting take of this story is going into the, I mean, firstly, he should be portrayed as vacuous as, as W was, like in, in the film, but, but we should go into the drone strikes. That's, that, to me, is what I think. When I think of Obama, people yeah, hate it that. Will but, it will never happen. You know, you'd have to understand American culture. Obama's a sacrosanct figure because he's manipulated everybody into feeling guilty about not liking him. And in fact, he was a very likable guy, I guess, you know. I, I, there, were, there were a number of the biographers pointed out that he discarded people very easily when they uh, got in his way or they were no longer useful. Um, he, had no, he has no personal loyalty. But look, he likes to play basketball. He's apparently a good basketball player. And uh, he seems like a more or less likable guy. There's, it's, and I would guess, you know, I, I'm not saying Obama's stupid. I'm just saying he's not what people claim he was. There's no brilliance there. His years in office are so unmemorable, apart from the... Uh, Obamacare, Affordable Care Act, nobody can even come up with a number two. Nobody can come up with a number two. There's nothing there. You said that you report that his 1,500-page that biography that was written about him by someone who sounds fairly sympathetic ultimately comes to a very chilling close. <laughs> it was the funniest thing I'll ever read. It's the funniest thing you can possibly read. This biographer, David J. Garrow, he tracked down everything there was to track down about Obama. The book has three, one second, hold up. Oh, this is only going to be on podcast, so you can't see it, because I'll bring you the book. I'll bring it just for you guys. Hold <laughs> I want to see it. Yes. Yeah. This is the book. Oh, my goodness. This book yeah. is... Wow. It, it's humongous. I read it two and a half times. I want to get my credit for that in my in my final grade and there are 300 pages i have to bring this up to you oh the text is small oh so small double column end notes 
300 pages, right? 300 pages of double column endnotes. So we can all agree he did his homework. And I'm reading the book, reading the book, on the very last page, the very last page, okay? After, this was, with all due regard to Garrow, he did his homework. It was very tedious reading, okay? And then he says, but it was essential to appreciate that while the crucible of self-creation had produced an ironclad will, he, he, had a, he was very competitive, the vessel was hollow at its core. In other words, there's nothing there. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great movie, though. That, that, that's a 1970s movie. Imagine? 1,500 pages in order to conclude there was nothing there. I called it in the book, as you recall, the Guinness Book of World's Records, Wild Goose Chase. He's <laughs> <laughs> tracked down every scrap of evidence, however tangential to Obama's life, only to conclude after 1,500 pages, there's nothing there. <laughs> I found that funny. Well, 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 Norman, the, the, just to put a bow on I wonder on, how Obama felt when he read that last page. Well, he probably, he he probably, probably didn't read it. read it. He probably didn't read it. Yeah, but, that's true. <laughs> but he, he probably skipped to the last page. <laughs> but, but just to put a bow, uh, you've crushed my dreams that they're going to make a great movie about Obama. So then that's going to happen. No, you can't in American culture. You know, it's impossible for me to see. I had good historians, good historians who are left wing, who were very, 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 very upset at what I said about Obama. I mean, really? very upset. Yes, you have to understand American culture. You cannot criticize him in front of black people. You can't criticize him in front of liberals. You cannot. You cannot. And they were very upset, uh, at, you know, to the point that uh, I, I, I lost them. They all said your personal animus towards Obama. Yeah, I admit I have a personal animus against charlatans. I do. I, I have. A, I do. And one thing I did after I wrote the first draft of the chapter, I said, you know what, this guy, this Obama, he sounds more and more like Elmer Gantry. So I sat down and I reread Elmer Gantry. I was like, yeah, he is Elmer Gantry. And as you know in the book, I started to. Double column, Obama and Gantry. He's a he's a fake. Well, it's uh, it, but but in the nineties though we had that book, you know. And look, this is all is sort of ephemera now, I suppose. But there was that book, Primary Colors, that was anonymous initially, and that became the film. And at least that movie, you know, we'll get off movies, but 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 at the same time, it was a critique. Yeah, but I don't think you understand. The time. The book the role that Obama that has been created for Obama in American life. He he is sacrosanct. You can't criticize him. Uh, and if you do, it's proof positive that you're a racist. Because he's been written now, the forces that are sort of propelling him uh we've got spotify we've got netflix we've got we've got the biggest most powerful companies oprah obviously oprah's involved have you ever seen 
if you go when you, when you get off the broadcast, listen to his latest commercial. He had he does a commercial of Obama. He's founded this new group called People for Change. Okay, uh, you you'll find it on your uh, on Google. And you, you're watching this. He says, we're organizing a new group, People for Change. And if you're for change, you should have everyone thinking, change for what? Change from what to what? <laughs> I mean, yes, I mean Nazis can. are for change. <laughs> he wants a third term. Yes. What? He wants a oh, third no, no, term. You know, he doesn't, actually, because he never had the political bone in his body. He had no interest in politics at all. None. No, it's very obvious. He had no, no no interest whatsoever. It bored him. He was from Hawaii. He had a laid back life. He likes to surf. He's a very good swimmer. He loves basketball. He's always watching ESPN, the sports station. But politics, politics just it absolutely bores him. The only thing he liked about politics, there was only one aspect of politics he loved. You know, part of that aspect was, if you read my book, you'll know. So here's the quiz. Oh, he loved giving the speeches. Yes, boring, mm. big, boring speeches. Yes, bubblegum speeches, which yes. none of which he wrote, but they projected his vision. Yes, they did project his vision. Spearman chewing gum. <laughs> well, Norman, we're very mindful of time, so maybe if we yes. could circle back to identity politics for the last question. It it feels as though uh, wokeness or radical left ideology politics, however you want to title it, has completely infected the idea of progressive politics and completely alienated people like us, for starters. Is there any way to resurrect the class-based oh, left I focus? I, I think, uh, remember, uh, identity politics emerged in reaction to the Bernie movement. It was pretty marginal up until then. It was, a, as I said, it was a kind of lunatic a, a typical lunatic fad in college campuses. But it, it got center stage with the Bernie candidacy. There, there are two lefts. There is the traditional left, which has to do with class, which has a, a, um, a relationship, exactly how you want to describe it, with the historical movements of Marxism, anarchism, socialism, communism, you know, it falls roughly in that trajectory, of which Bernie is a kind of exemplar. You know, you could easily see Bernie standing in the soapbox, giving his speeches. Uh, he's that type. And then there's this other thing, uh, which, as I said, historically, it had a relationship to the left, you know, the women's movement, the African-American uh, civil rights movement and how they intersected with the left. But what happened with the identity politics is it broke off from the class element. It expunged the uh, class element and it just came became focused on the identity aspect and was used as a club to better those who are fighting for a class platform. And I kind of think I don't think it's going to have a long shelf life, the identity politics, because it's already entered this kind of lunatic terminal stage where, believe it or not, just the other day, Whoopi Goldberg was attacking it. Did you catch that? Because they want to now rewrite the James Bond books yes. to make them woke. And even Whoopi Goldberg, this is crazy. <laughs> if, the view, if, the, if anyone on The View is saying it's crazy, then it is the end exactly. stage. Exactly. Yes. So you think, you know, 
they're reaching a, a, a point of a terminal point, this lunacy just gotten completely out of hand. Uh, so I don't, I'm not certain it's going to have, I don't believe it will have a long shelf life, but then the Democratic Party is going to have to find something to substitute for it. Because, you know, Biden is trying to win back part of the white working class. That's why in his State of the Union address, he focused on all these working class issues. I don't think he's going to be successful uh, in doing that. And the Republican uh, candidate will probably win over a large sector of the white working class uh, and probably win. I mean, I don't I don't want to get into the jockey, you know, the, the horse race. Prim- uh, what do you call it? The, the horse, horse race. Yeah. yeah. But I think the Republic, I think the, you never know because every American election is so close. You know, we're talking about 10 votes either way. But um, I can't believe I think Richard DeSantis will be uh, the uh, candidate. And I think just the contrast on the debating stage between his youth and vigor and Biden, who's basically a walking corpse, uh, is going to kill it for him. Mm. So. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for being so generous. Yeah, it was very nice meeting you. And I. Uh, hope that if I ever am in your part of the woods, we can have a marsupial for lunch. I'm a vegetarian, so it's not going to happen. Don't Come worry. Um, uh, thank you so much. Norman. Yes, thank you. And you do look like Ricky Martin. <laughs> <laughs> La vida loca. Now, exactly who you look like. Uh, let me see. You do actually look like someone. Give me that profile again. Okay, this one. Kelsey Grammer. Uh, yeah, I Fraser. can see a little. I don't, Kel- I, don't know any, I don't know any TV program after 1970, but I do know Kelsey Grammer is a reactionary, so that's all I know about him. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the New Flesh podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the new flesh.